Uh, if you are new here, we are um, at that point in our service where we look at a portion of the scriptures and then we talk about it, have a conversation about it. First I speak and then we do Q&A. And so we are at that point in our service now and I'm going to turn your attention to the back panel of your bulletin where the scripture reading that we will be reflecting upon is located. We're doing a small series to start um, September uh, on prayer. And this morning, our scripture reading to help us think about the centrality of prayer is found in Luke 11. And to help us with the reading of it, David. Luke chapter 11, verse 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And when he said, and he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Every September, we usually take a couple of weeks and uh, revisit our core values uh, that we have as a church, who we are and why we do what we do. Uh, our core values of being missional, uh, being merciful, being prayerful, being city positive and gospel. Um, but this year, because of the particular place we are in the life stage of our church, we decided to spend all of it on one of them, prayer. And this is the reason why. We are in a place in our church where we've been very blessed. Uh, in the last two, two and a half years, we've almost doubled in size. We've got this beautiful new building. We planted a church. We started an internship program. Uh, so all kinds of great things are happening in the last couple of years. And the temptation when things are going well is to do what? Is to take the credit. Is to think that you're hot stuff is to think somehow you deserve it, to get proud or complacent. And we don't want to do that. What we should do as a church is go to our knees and give thanks to God who's done all of this. What we should do as a church is go to our knees and ask God for more. And so what we want to do is make sure we have calibrated ourselves rightly as we enter into this new season of the church. In this passage, Jesus teaches how central prayer is. He gives us three 
points, as it were. Yes, I know, I always have to. Okay, I'll give you two. <laughs> Why prayer is so central and how to make prayer central. Okay, only two points. Of course, knowing me, there's like 18 subpoints in there, so have fun taking notes, okay? Why prayer is central and how to make prayer central. That is essentially what Jesus is trying to teach us here. So why is prayer central? Jesus teaches us here that prayer is central as he teaches a condensed version of what Christians call the Lord's Prayer. And in this little dissertation here with a shortened version of the Lord's Prayer and then a couple of examples, Jesus says, prayer is as central as breathing for three reasons. Because of the reality of God, prayer is central. Because of the reality of God's kingdom, prayer is central. And because of the reality of our life, God, I mean, prayer is central. Prayer is central because of the reality of God, the reality of God's kingdom, and the reality of life. That's why prayer is central. Firstly, the reality of God. Look at how he tells us to pray. They ask him, teach us to pray. As John taught his disciples, he said, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Jesus is saying here, God is, and God is a father. God is, and God is a father. God is. The reality of God is the fundamental reality of the universe. God exists. God made his name to be hallowed. That is the hinge around which the creation has been made. That is the principle upon which the cosmos has been architected. All reality flows from God's existence. All reality flows to him. Everything in the world has his mark in it. As heavenly creator and divine artist, nothing was made independent of God. Everything was made by God to flourish with and through him. As the apostle Paul wrote in Romans eleven thirty six, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That means that everything you have has God's imprint on it and God's causative influence on it. Are you hardworking? You got that from God. Are you good looking? You didn't get that from me. <laughs> you got that from God. Are you smart? Are you wise? Where did you get what you have? Everything you have says the gospel, has been given to you by the God who is and is the architect of everything that is. God is more present to us and more necessary to our existence than the air we breathe, which air, by the way, he gave us to breathe. Therefore, God is. He is the ultimate ever-present reality that the whole world needs to survive, that the whole of creation was created to depend upon for its very existence, moment by moment. But this God, this ever-present reality is a person. It's not a force. It's someone called Father. He's intimately involved in the lives and the experiences of his people. And he's always been that way. The very first moment that humans were formed, God created us, it says, in his image. And if you think about when you look at a kid, lots of kids, though, they're gone now. You've, 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 you've taken all my illustrations away. <laughs> if you look at a little kid, you go, oh, it looks a lot like his parents. Absolutely. And you, you 
Especially if you're a parent, you're like, yeah, he looks a lot like me. Or if you're me, you're like, oh, yeah, I hope he looks a lot more like his mom. And, and so they bear the imprint of their parents. So too, in creation, we bear the imprint and the image of God himself. He made us in his image. But not only did he make us in his image, the picture from Genesis 2 is so beautiful. It says, the Lord God formed man out of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the human became a living creature. Put yourself in this word picture. Here's God stooping down, taking some dust, forming it. I don't know, did he spit to give it some consistency? And then all of a sudden he cradles it in his arms and he pulls it close to him and he breathes life into the nostrils. Like a father breathing life and love into a child they're holding in their arms. It's this beautiful fatherly picture in the second chapter of Genesis. Then God plants a garden for humans to live in, to flourish in, gives them stuff to do just like a father does. Here's your chores, cultivate the garden, guard the garden, and then we blow it just like kids do. We decide we're gonna do our own thing, forget about it, and we walk away. But when we walk away like rebellious children, God chases after us like a loving father. And he re-enters into covenant with humanity with Abraham and says, I will make you a blessing and a nation. I will make this great nation Israel through you and the whole world will be blessed. And he takes that promise to his kids and he keeps faithful to it as a father should. He, He walks them through famine and almost obliteration and oppression and he cares and he protects them. When famine threatens to to obliterate them, he moves them to Egypt. When slavery in Egypt threatens to completely oppress and decimate them, he delivers them through the Exodus and finally gives them a home in Israel and gives them and plants them there almost like he planted Adam and Eve in the garden. And then in the fullness of time, God the Father sends his one beloved son Jesus down to us. And Jesus comes. And Jesus, being fully human, shows us the reality of God's love for us. And what does Jesus call God? Father. I'm a son. That's my father. I'm going to make you sons and daughters. That's who you call him. Because he wants to be your father. And then Jesus goes to the cross and he gives his life as a ransom because you're strangers to God in your own selfishness and your own sin. And he pays the debt of the offense against God so that God can adopt you and he pays the adoption price for you. God is an eternal father. From all eternity, he has planned to be our father. He has created us to be his children. He has constructed history to reveal his fatherhood to us in the beauty of his son, Jesus, making us joint heirs and joint children, adopted children with him. There's no reality apart from God, and there's no relationship With God, apart from Jesus, they all come together. You exist for God, by him and through him and for him. And Jesus came to relate you to him. Prayer is central because of the reality of God. God is central. God is, and God is our Father. 
Prayer is a central and natural a part of the universe is breathing because prayer is talking with the God who is as central to the universe, more central than anything else, more central than air. God is, and God is our Father. Prayer is central because God is, and God is our Father, and He wants to talk to His children. Secondly, Prayer is central because of the reality not only of God, but of God's kingdom. Look at the next phrase in the Lord's Prayer. It says, your kingdom come. Hmm, that's pretty, pretty brief. The, the version that Matthew gives, the fuller version of Jesus' teaching on prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There in those words, Jesus is not just teaching us how to pray. He's teaching us the nature of God's kingdom. And that kingdom's nature makes prayer essential. Because the reality about God's kingdom is that it has not come yet fully, not here. It's fully operative in heaven. And so Matthew records Jesus saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. You see, God's kingdom is fully operational, is fully revealed, is fully ruling in heaven. But here on earth, not so. It's partial. It's partial. And Jesus taught this principle to his disciples. After they had risen, they asked him, Acts chapter 1, verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What's he talking about? The times and seasons when the kingdom that's in heaven is going to fully come down and be operative on earth. He says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then after that, he ascends into heaven. What's Jesus saying? The kingdom's not fully here. I'm going up to where it's fully ex, where it's fully operative. And one day I'm coming back to bring it down. Until then, bear witness to its coming and give expression to its existence by the reality of you as Christians. The people of God with the spirit of God are the proof of the existence of God's kingdom here on earth. But we live in that in-between period of history. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. No, it's of heaven. It will come down one day when he brings a new world. But now it's partially here. It can't be seen very well. It's seen in the church and the people of God. And you, you get this actually if you are a Christian. You get this intuitively. You might even get this if, if you're not a Christian, but you're self-reflective because in your own inner self, you know this to be true, that, that if these ethics of God, of loving your neighbor as yourself are true ethics, and God really does exist, we don't live it. This world is not a world where people are loving their neighbor as themselves. And if you're a Christian, you look inside you and you go, I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. I don't know that I'm loving my wife as I love myself. My own sin, 
My own corruption is before me all the time. I remember as a single man, I, I know I had a few faults. I'm a work in progress, you know, but I, I'm pretty good, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a catch, you know. I just saw pictures of myself when I had just gotten married. I wasn't really a catch, but uh, that notwithstanding, I thought I was a catch. And I thought, you know, I'll really help my wife. I'll, I'll help her become more of a godly person because, you know, I'm, I'm ready to be a leader. And then I got married. <laughs> yeah, and all that illusion of self-worth just, right? Because what happens when you get married? Oh, you just got married last week. Uh, you, you're still in that illusory stage. Let me tell you what's going to happen in two weeks. <laughs> All of you is going to be revealed and you're oh, I'm not nearly as good as I thought I was. You're going to feel naked spiritually, soulfully, psychologically, and emotionally because you're known and your sin can't be hidden. And I saw how much I valued my own time how much I valued doing things my own way, how little I really cared about other people. You know, my love language is giving gifts. How come you don't want my gift? Well, my love language, honey, is acts of service. So switch. Doesn't work that way. So I thought I'd gotten to the bottom of myself, you know, after about a year of marriage. Okay, I've seen how dark I really am. <laughs> Ten years later, oh my gosh. Yeah. And then I thought I was really at the bottom. Then I had kids. <laughs> yeah, then you really realize... You're not laughing enough. Not enough of you have had kids yet, clearly. Because all of you parents out there know what happens when you become a mom or a dad, right? You thought you were pretty patient. <laughs> Until you're up at 3 in the morning and this kid is screaming at you for no reason. And you're trying to talk to it and it just screams louder. So you go louder and it doesn't work. And then you look at it and then it projectile vomits on you. Hmm. Or you're over at, a, oh, I love it when I was over at a friend's house, just put my child on a high chair and we're, we're trying to get to know this couple. We really like them, kind of want to impress them, projectile vomit, you know, boom. Thank you. Remember the terror, parents, the first time your child wandered onto the street, oblivious of your calls? Remember how you just wanted to take and shake them? I know it's politically incorrect to say that, but you felt it because you were so scared. Yeah. God's kingdom has hardly come in me at all <laughs> now that I've got kids. I have so far to go. The depths of anger, the deep pockets of selfishness, this is my time. <laughs> People say kids are sinners. They are. <laughs> you can tell a kid's a sinner about like a month in. But do you remember the first time the kid looked at you and you said, don't you do that? Don't you put your, don't you dump your food? And they just, she just looked at me. And she took her plate and she held it up and she just went like that. <laughs> and she put it back down. What are you going to do to me? And as soon as she could mutter the words, she said, Children's Aid Society. <laughs> yes, I have that kind of a daughter. This is what parenting taught me. I need God every day. I need God more every day. As I get older, my, my sin runs so deep. My roots of my sin are way deep down. The dynamic of selfishness in me is massive. I need God to bring his love, his patience, his kindness, his mercy into my life. I need him to bring his kingdom into my soul. More and more I need it. His kingdom is incomplete in me. 
And so I am more dependent as I get older. Now, isn't that countercultural? Because what's, what's our culture say? Our culture says, as you mature, you mature to independence. Yeah? Right? That's what we're supposed to do? Get out of the home. So, so as we mature, we become independent of our parents. And, th- and then we get our own place, and we're independent. And then we get to financial independence. And then we can buy a home. And then, and then we get to full independence, and we can retire. And we don't need anything or anybody. That's maturity. But the gospel says, switch it. Because you don't understand the real dynamics going on in the spiritual realm. Because the gospel says that independence creates spiritual indifference. You stop caring for others. Spiritual independence, complacency, and selfishness. My time is my time. Independence shrivels you emotionally, soulfully, and spiritually. And you can see that in our world. Look at what technology has done to our social skills. (laughs) Shrunk them. We're made all the more selfish by our independence. Not having to wait for anything we thought was a great thing. I can't wait for more than a minute now before I'm impatient. I just, we're so used to everything being instant, we've lost our ability to be patient. We're all triggered now by injustice and oppression that's much smaller than the injustice and oppression that previous generations faced because we've had so little of it. We have a, my my daughter now is 11. She's not projectile vomiting anymore. She's getting ready to run the subway by herself because if you're in Toronto, 12 is the age that they begin to take the subway by themselves. If you've grown up in the suburbs, that may sound absurdly early. Welcome to Toronto. By 14, they're completely TTC independent usually. We're training her to be independent because that's how we measure it. But being independent of your parents, while a normal and necessary part of human development is meant to show you your need to be dependent on your spiritual father. The kingdom of God is fully realized in heaven, but not down here. In God, but not in me. Prayer, therefore, is central. I need God. I can't make myself more kind, more patient, more loving. I need God to do it. The reality of God makes prayer central. The reality of God's kingdom and its incompleteness in me and you and in the world makes prayer central. And finally, the reality of life makes prayer central. Look look at these next few verses in the Lord's prayer as he gives it. This brochure keeps coming down. I'm going to put you right here. It says, give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. There's a three-point mini-sermon in here, but I'll resist my desire to do that. I just want you to see the reality of life here. Give us each day our daily bread. You know what he's presupposing? Your life is not as predictable as you think it is. We're walking along thinking we've got our life nicely planned out. We've got our spreadsheets. We've got our daily schedules. We think we know what tomorrow, next month, next year is going to bring. We've got it all calendarized or bullet journalized, or whatever, spreadsheetized, whatever you're using. But it isn't actually life. 
How many times has the world economy suddenly gone south and tons of people are out of job? How many of us have had cancer suddenly and tragically enter into our family tree and completely upend everything? Tragedy strikes. Ask the people in the Bahamas how predictable life is. This world is unpredictable and fragile. I'm a political and cultural junkie. I've been watching the news, I've been reading the commentaries, I've been reading cultural analysis for decades. Six or seven years ago, if you would have told me or anybody I was reading that Brexit would happen, that Donald Trump would get elected, and that far-right nationalism would be on the rise in Europe, we would have laughed in your face. If you'd have told me a year ago that Hong Kong would be in complete uproar, I would have looked at you like you were crazy. The world's unpredictable. Because someone else is controlling it. And God keeps the world unpredictable to us so that we may become dependent upon him. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in the minds of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Paul the Apostle talking to a group of the intellectual elites in his day said these words in Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, the God who is, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. The ultimate reality. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything emanates and flows from him. And verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. History is known and architected by him. Here's the reason, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. The whole purpose of this unpredictability to us that God has orchestrated is that we should seek God. If you're here and you're not a Christian, this is why the world is unknowable and unpredictable to you. God's calling you to seek him. And if you're a Christian here, God has done it that you would continually go to him and seek his wisdom and depend upon him. Prayer is central because of the reality of God. Prayer is central because of the reality of God's kingdom. And prayer is central because of the reality of life. Life is unpredictable. But there's a final little thing that he throws in. And this particular thing, perhaps Christians almost uniquely get. And so if you're not here, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, I get that you may not get this. But I just want you to hear this. Forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. That's, that's needing God's grace. We've already talked about that. And lead us not into temptation. In the fuller version in Matthew, it says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Life is not just fickle and unpredictable. Life is war. If you are a Christian, 
You are in the middle of a war for your soul. There is an enemy of your soul, and he wants your soul. And if you're not a Christian, it is the same. There is a battle going on, and there is one who tempts us all the time. He is tempting us that he may kill us. In John 8, 44, Jesus, speaking of the adversary, the devil, Satan, said this, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There is someone, men and women, who hates you, who wants to destroy your spiritual life, who constantly fills your head with subtle temptations. You need this promotion to be fully you. You need this on your resume, or your worth is really damaged. You need to throw that colleague under the bus. They need to take the blame for that project's being a failure. You can't handle that kind of implication. Your kids need to go to the right school for you to be fully you. Lies. But we're tempted by them. We often do not see the evil one working in these temptations because our hearts themselves can deceive us. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Prayer is central because there's a war for your soul and the enemy is more powerful than you unless you have help. But if you have God Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Then his power is enough to triumph in that war. Prayer is central because of the reality of God. Prayer is central because of the reality of God's kingdom. Prayer is central because of the reality of life. Life is unpredictable and life is spiritual battle. Now, very quickly, how then do we make prayer central? It says here two stories. One <laughs> of an impudent person knocking on the door late at night to get three loaves because a friend of mine has come late and he needs to give him hospitality. The second one, the story of a father giving good gifts to kids who ask. Two applications how to make prayer central. First one, come shamelessly. Second one, come confidently. Come shamelessly. The first story is of someone who near midnight has been, hmm, suddenly has a visitor come upon him. And so he now needs, by the rules of hospitality, to give that man some food or that woman some food. Three loaves of bread are the standard um, set of loaves of bread for a meal in that culture in that day. But baking bread takes a while. So this person's come late, they're probably hungry right away. He wants an immediate solution. He doesn't have three uh, loaves of bread. He'd have to stoke the fire and bake it. It would take too long. So he goes to his neighbor, that's the whole picture. But the picture here is someone coming at an unreasonable time of day with an unusual and unreasonable request that shouldn't be asked in normal custom. And the word here is 
I tell you, though he will not get up and rise, no, sorry, they not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, verse 8, but because of his impudence. The Greek word there literally is without shame. His shamelessness. He will rise and give him whatever he needs. Come to God shamelessly. Ask him about the strange things, the weird things, the things you're kind of embarrassed to admit you're asking God for. I'm not talking about a BMW. or I'm, I mean, I'm talking about my daughter losing her iPod yesterday and praying to God to help her find it. And I'm like, why are you wasting God's time praying for finding an iPod? And then she found it right where we'd put it. And she comes in, Daddy, Daddy, God answered my prayers. Isn't God good? And I'm like, you shameless father of no faith. She understands the sermon you're about to preach better than you do. She shamelessly asks for whatever she wants, whatever she feels she needs. She's often wrong in what she needs. Daddy, can I get a new iPhone 10, iPhone X? No, you're 11. But someone on YouTube has one. Yeah, well, they're a multimillionaire on YouTube who happens to be a child superstar. They can afford it. Apple probably gave it to them. No, no, can I have an iPhone? No. Okay. Okay, I guess I can have an iPhone 8 then. Let's, let's compromise that an iPhone 8. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> she comes shamelessly. She keeps knocking. She keeps asking. Most scholars think it means persistence in prayer. But, the, but recent scholars have realized it's the shamelessness and the impudence. They're praying about everything. Philippians 4.6 agrees with this when Paul says to the Philippian church, don't be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Anxious about nothing. What are you anxious about? I'm anxious about a lot of things I don't really want to tell you. I'm a speaker, you know. I was talking to another speaker once, and he's like, Dan, I hate to say this, but as men, do you ever get up there and wonder if your zipper's up? I'm like, yes. I'm anxious about the silliest thing. Sorry, I told you. Okay, now you know. We do. We get anxious about the weirdest things. But God says, whatever you're anxious about, pray about. So now you know. Pray shamelessly. Because prayer is so central. We get anxious about all kinds of things. Those are good things to pray about. Secondly, come confidently. The second story is about a father who is being asked for things. What's, what father among you, verse 11, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to get good, good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Scholars think, for those of you who theologically wonder about this, as I did, what does he mean here? When he says the Holy Spirit, does he mean just give the Holy Spirit to those who don't have it? No. By the Holy Spirit, he mean, he's meaning everything that God gives his young flock of people in Christ is comprehended by that overarching term. That's what scholars think. So all the good gifts that God will give comprehended in the major gift, the Holy Spirit. Now note what the Father does and doesn't give. The Father doesn't give bad things to those who shamelessly ask him as his kids. 
But the father doesn't necessarily give exactly what the kid prays for either. What Jesus promises is that if you ask him, he will give you a good thing that you may not know is good for you, but that he does because he's your father. And my, when my daughter wanted an iPhone 8, she got a used iPod. <laughs> I'm not sure we were right, but I'm pretty sure she wasn't ready for an iPhone 8 with a data plan at nine. That's what fathers do. But the point here is you can come to God not knowing that your exact prayer will be answered in the way you want it, but knowing it will be heard by a father who loves you. And how do you know that he loves you? Because the gospel is true that he sent his son to die for you. And his son agreed to die for you so that you would no longer be a stranger to God, but his beloved child too. Because when Jesus opened up his arms and allowed himself to be nailed to a cross, he was saying, this is the price that God is willing to pay, to pay the debt of the sin of all of his kids so that he can freely adopt them into his beloved family. The true son, Jesus, the firstborn, gave his life that we too could be sons and daughters and call God our Father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that prayer is central. I thank you that you show us our need to pray, that maturity in the spiritual life is a life of increasing dependence, not independence, that life is unpredictable and hard and our sin is deep and your kingdom is incomplete. We just need you like we need air to breathe. Help us to know that and help us to come shamelessly to you with all that we have in our hearts, all the anxieties we have in our minds and help us to come confidently knowing that you hear us. As a good father, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, first question. The Father doesn't give bad things. Well, in my experience with suffering, I feel like I've been betrayed by God the Father. I'm angry and stuck, and I don't know what to do. Thank you for having the courage to share that. I don't know who you are, but I've been where you are. And when you're really suffering, you can feel betrayed. It's normal. And the only answer that I really have for you is the answer I had for myself. And that is this. God's with you in your suffering because he sent his son to suffer with you and for you. You don't have a God who doesn't understand your suffering, but a God who went under, underwent suffering for you so that he could be a merciful, compassionate high priest who comes alongside of you. And I would say, take your anger and go to God, realizing he understands your anger, but that in your suffering, you're not alone. Jesus suffered for you and with you. 
And in your suffering, you're experiencing something of what he experienced. And God does have a purpose for it that ultimately is good. Ask him to unstick you. But if you want, come to me privately and we'll, we'll walk through this because I can't, I can't in three minutes give you an answer that even comes close to really helping with the depth of what you're dealing with. And thank you for asking. Is it cruel for God to keep the world unpredictable? Especially given the Bahamas situation. If you don't believe in an afterlife, then I think that's a very plausible conclusion. If you think that this world is all there is, then these unpredictable things and tragedies that happen in places like the Bahamas just don't seem to have a good answer and it does seem cruel. But if God is true and there is a world paid for by the blood and the suffering of Jesus of absolute freedom from all this brokenness and all this evil, if that world exists, and God suffered what he suffered to give that as a free gift to us, then I can't say God is cruel, and I can say that God's taking a long view. He'd rather be your father for all eternity, even if that means you have to deal with the unpredictability of life here for the 80 or 90 years that you are here, because eternally, men and women, is forever. Forever. And what God is asking is for you to exchange your hope in this 80 or 90 years for an eternal hope that will never fade or never go out. And so based on that calculation, I can say with pain but with some gospel confidence that God's not being cruel by keeping the world unpredictable. He's just being God. He's infinite in wisdom and we're not. And by the very nature of how we're made, we could never know the fullness of the future. Uh, last question. Uh, detour. Uh, I'm just wanting to know what version of the Bible is printed in the bulletins. Um, the English Standard Version. Um, uh, that's the version. Um, if you have any more questions, come and see me at the end. But now what we're going to do is we're going to go to the table of God's grace. The table that Jesus instituted on the night that he was betrayed when he took some ordinary bread, bread that was meant to signify a Passover meal. And he broke the bread and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in memory of me. And what he meant was this, that we as a people of God, faced with the unpredictability of life and the brokenness of our own sin and our own need for grace, need to be confronted with the beauty of God in all of his mercy because he, in his son, allowed his body to be broken that we could become his adopted children. By grace, you have been saved. A little while later, Jesus keeping on the same theme, picked up a glass of wine in that meal and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for you. And he said, do this in memory of me. 
by which Jesus meant that he was going to give the final sufficient act to pay for the sins of you and I. He was going to pour out his blood. It would be the sufficient price for our forgiveness and adoption. And so we are now asked, if we are Christians, to eat this meal of grace and to digest the reality of God in all his fullness of mercy and the reality of our need and dependence of him and his grace. And so if you're here and you are a baptized Christian, this meal is for you. Take it with all gladness, knowing that the reality is that God is your Father because of the mediation of Jesus, our Savior. And if you're not a Christian, we ask that you read the prayers and wonder if this could be true of you. There are prayers in the bulletin for you. Locate yourself there. And let me pray, and then the table will be open. Father, I thank you for this meal, and I pray that you would make it a meal of great grace, great joy for us. Would you take this ordinary bread and cup and make it extraordinary spiritual feeding for us as we feast upon Christ and his grace? In Christ's name, amen. The bread is gluten-free, the wine is darker than the grape juice, and the table is open. Enjoy. Enjoy.